Welcome everybody to this uh, talk, A Green Growth Economy. My name's Lenore Taylor. I'm the political editor of Guardian Australia. For those of you who haven't found us yet, you've found us. <laughs> For those of you who haven't, just Google us. We're the Australian operation of the Guardian News Organisation. Uh, we're very, very fortunate today to have speaking with us on this topic two of the men I've uh, probably had the most practical and, the practical and theoretical discussions with on this topic over the 30 years I've been reporting on it. We have Professor Ross Garneau, who wrote not one but two reports for the former Labor government on this topic. And Dr John Hewson, who's had a very long professional and political interest in this topic and who just last year was a co-author of a report to the South Australian government on a low emissions economy in South Australia. So we're very fortunate. I finished last year over at the uh, Paris conference, climate change conference, and as always when reporting on those conferences, they appear to be a little bit of a parallel universe. In Paris, the big discussion was whether we should try to limit global emissions to 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees. The idea of net zero emission economy was just a given, like what you had to do to get there. Back in Australia, though, at least part of the debate is still mired in this idea that somehow uh, a low emissions economy and an, and an effective growing economy are incompatible objectives. And so what I'd like to start with in this discussion today is to just go to each of our panellists and ask them to paint us a picture of what the future could look like if we stopped thinking about it that way, if we put in place the right policies, if businesses took the right decisions to have a low emissions growing economy. What are the opportunities there? What could the Australian economy look like? We'll come back to the to the political questions and the, and the individual sort of business transitions later. But I just want to start by looking at where we could get to if we did things right. We'll start with you, Ross. Uh, thanks, Lenore. Well, you began with Paris. Well, the Paris decision, uh, and it was a decision of all of the members of the United Nations, uh, 196 countries, was to limit uh, uh, man-made... Um, uh, global warming to 2 degrees uh, Celsius, if possible, to get it down to 1.5. Well, 2 degrees would require all the developed countries to have zero net emissions by the middle of the century, and the rest of the world, the developing countries, not all that long after that. 1.5 would mean zero net emissions quite a long bef way before the middle of the century. And uh, that wasn't an idle decision. It was taken very seriously. It was led by the seven major industrial countries, uh, the United States, um, Britain, Germany, uh, France, uh, Canada with its new prime minister, Japan, uh, and by China. Uh, and uh, uh, for the leaders of all of those countries, it was a major objective. For the United States and China, the two biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, it was on the back of, a, of a, an agreement between the two of them to radically change their uh, uh, emissions, uh, change the trajectory of growth uh, of emissions. So, so the Paris decisions weren't idly taken. Uh, and they've got very big implications for us. It means that uh, if we're not to be 
pariahs in the modern world, in the world of tomorrow, uh, then we've got to do our fair share. We've got to move along with them. And the slower we move, the, the harder and more expensive it's going to be. Um, partly because we'll be making investments now that we've, we've got to scrap later on if we're not on a path of a zero emissions economy from now on. Uh, secondly, uh, because uh, uh, the growth opportunities in the emerging world of uh, lo low-carbon economy are going to all be about fitting in with what others are doing. If you're making products uh, in ways that are unacceptable in the rest of the world, um, making uh, uh, goods and services that don't fit into a low-carbon world economy because you're a high-carbon economy, uh, then you won't have the same opportunities as other countries. number of countries uh, led by the United States, Japan, China, Korea, Germany have seen becoming a leader in the, in the uh, movement towards a low-carbon economy as the key to future growth and are making major investments to bring that about. Well, Australia did very well in the old fossil fuel economy, so there's a bit of a feeling amongst a lot of Australians that we'd be giving something valuable up if, uh, uh, if we joined this march. Well, first of all, We've got no, no choice. Uh, uh, being a pariah will be a, a very difficult and uh, expensive place to be. Uh, secondly, um, that old fossil fuel economy is no longer delivering the gains that it used to. If your superannuation fund uh, is full of uh, 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 companies that are mining coal or generating power from coal, you've lost a lot of your superannuation in the last four years. Uh, the average of... Uh, uh, pure coal companies on the International Stock Exchange is only, is a, only about 15% of the value now that it had uh, f f uh, four or five years ago. So uh, uh, it's no longer, the old uh, um, carbon energy economy is no, deliver, no longer delivering what it used to deliver. But the, the final point, and it's a crucial one, uh, is that Australia is better placed than any other developed country to do well in the low-carbon world economy. We, we had a lot of coal and a lot of natural gas compared with other developed countries, a lot per person, because not that many of us. Uh, but we've got even richer resources of renewable energy, of wind and uh, uh, solar resources, and uh, in the future with technological development, with wind, with uh, wave, uh, geothermal, uh, uh, we're even richer per capita in these uh, resources for the low-carbon um, uh, world economy than we were in the old fossil fuel economy. So if we play, play our cards right, we can be the superpower of the world low-carbon economy, and that's going to be a, a pretty valuable place to be. And, and John Hewson, in your report last year, you were actually looking at how South Australia could be right at the forefront of that move for Australia to be a superpower of the modern economies. Uh, that's right. Look, um, I think one of the most annoying features of the political debate in this country over the last uh, 20 or 30 years when it comes to climate change is not only the short-term opportunistic sort of negative nature of that debate, but an implicit assumption behind a lot of it that to respond to climate change must cost us economic growth, must cost us jobs. And, uh, you know, a lot of the models that have been developed to demonstrate that have essentially started with that as an assumption rather than as a conclusion. 
And I used to teach modelling as a professor. I used to tease my students by saying, let's build a model to prove something. Let's determine the outcome and see whether we can get the model to do it. And that's been a feature of and this. And you always could? Yeah, you could, yeah. You can always produce the model to produce whatever conclusion you like. And unfortunately, in the debate now, it doesn't matter whether it's the political debate or some parts of the business community, everybody's got a model that proves exactly what they want to say about climate change. But I think the reality is, as, as Ross has said, we are uniquely placed as a country, and South Australia in particular is uniquely placed, to capitalise on what should be a technological revolution in response to climate change, bringing a whole lot of new industries and a whole lot of new jobs that, in many cases, perhaps we can't even foreshadow what they'll be. We can see that we've got abundant resources of uh, sun and wind, um, and uh, there's every reason that we can add real value to those if we can develop an effective uh, battery and heat storage capability. The technology exists for these things. Uh, South Australia is uniquely placed to actually do that. And suddenly, you know, you don't get... Well, the wind doesn't blow all day, the sun doesn't shine all day, but if you can store that energy over a 24-hour period, uh, you can actually revolutionise the whole, whole industrial base of, of, of our community. And uh, one of the things we did in the South Australian report with modelling, again, our modelling, um, was to show that uh, South Australia could be 100% renewable in the 2030s. Uh, in terms of power generation and have the capacity to actually export green power to the rest of Australia. We actually went a bit further than the government's gone and suggested that given that the federal government may take some time, whoever they are, to put in an emissions trading scheme and uh, uh, with a, you know, put a price on carbon, suggested that the South Australian government might actually like to think of joining the California scheme and selling the credits into there, generating billions of dollars of additional revenue to facilitate the further development of the state. They put now the kibosh on that, though, didn't they? The they have, well, they, they, they we're not inclined to agree to that now, in the sense that they'd like to keep the pressure on whoever's in government federally to actually put in place an emissions trading scheme. But I think, realistically, if that doesn't happen, then, of course, it's, it remains a live option. I think, though, that the Paris Agreement was very significant, particularly being led I guess by the United States and China together, what a lot of people thought could never happen. But now it's got to be translated into a viable action as to how you're actually going to achieve some of those emissions reduction commitments. And that's where I think the debate should go in this country now. I mean, I'm, I was very disappointed, of course, that the Abbott government um, went for 26 to 28 per cent cut in emissions by 2030, which is about half what the Climate Change Authority had recommended that they should consider. Uh, but uh, even at that, um, you'd have to say it was a bit of a win to get Abbott to actually put a target on the, on the table at all. So I guess the Paris process actually had drove the political debate to a limited extent in this country. But now the focus has got to be how we get to 26 to 28% reduction and indeed more uh, um, to uh, meet our contribution, appropriate contribution to the uh, zero net emissions uh, uh, target of, of 2050. And I think that I'd like to see the debate move in, in that direction and look at some of these technological possibilities that are, are very real. I mean, uh, for example, just use one example. Um, the essence of heat and battery storage is, of course, graphite. It's the, the key element of a lithium-ion battery. South Australia's got massive resources of graphite that are effectively not mined. And you can mine them, beneficiate, refine, 
and even have a battery development industry as well. And that's a realistic possibility with the technology that's available today. It's just taking one example. Which brings us inevitably to the politics of this issue. Um, having reported on this for many decades now, I have to come to the scientific conclusion that we've made an unholy hash of the politics of climate change in Australia. We're now just eight weeks from, or possibly just eight weeks from another federal election and as things stand, neither political party has a detailed policy on how they're going to meet the various targets that they've each committed to. Um, the Labor Party, it must be said, has goals, credible goals, but haven't yet detailed the policy to get there. They may do that in the near future. Malcolm Turnbull has actually picked up Tony Abbott's policy, which I don't think any serious observer thinks is a credible means of reaching a long-term goal. So my next question to uh, each of our panellists is to let to go to the politics, as sad and sorry a story as it is, uh, how you see this playing out and whether you would agree with the conclusion I've reached recently, which is that a party, I think in the current climate, despite all of the scare campaigns that we've seen in the past, I think in the current climate, a political party that stood up and really argued the case for a sensible climate policy uh, would be on a winner. What do you think, Ross? I agree with that, uh, Lenore. I, I actually think there's, a, there's been a base in the, in the community uh, uh, for a political party winning majority support for strong action on climate change for quite a long time. And uh, uh, I, I, my two reports, uh, one to uh, all of the state premiers of Australia plus uh, the Prime Minister when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister, the second to the multi-party uh, um, parliamentary committee on climate change, which the main recommendations of which were legislated in 2011. Uh, I, I think in both of those occasions, uh, my extensive consultations in the community told me uh, that there was more interest in this subject than any other public policy issue uh, in which I've been involved in an unconscionably long life in public policy. And, uh, 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 and I think that on both occasions, uh, timid leadership uh, uh, caused leaders to hold back from strongly arguing the case. And if they think they, if they had, I don't think that Tony Abbott would have been able to uh, make his simple slogans run so far. Uh, I, I, th I think that was the case uh, at the time of the 2010 decisions and uh, election. It was the case in the, in the 2013 election. The, the Gillard government and the, and the uh, uh, hung parliament uh, legislated a very good set of policies, recognised everywhere in the world as... Uh, uh, as world's best practice. Um, uh, but uh, the, the government held back from making uh, defence of that uh, uh, set of policies a, a central part of their re-election platform. They, they were a bit spooked by the, the slogans of the uh, Abbott opposition. Uh, I think that a, a government that, uh, or an opposition uh, that... Uh, uh, that told the truth, uh, that uh, argued the case on the basis of the, the science as we, we know it, that uh, argued for first best policies uh, uh, would find there, there was a base in the community uh, to, to move forward. But on that, on that basis then, um, Malcolm Turnbull's direct action policy is a political liability for him. I mean, is there any way he can zhuzh it up to make it into something credible or does he really have to ditch it and start again? 
Well, Malcolm Turnbull uh, got very high regard for Malcolm and uh, he took a very close interest in my climate change reviews and was strongly supportive of them. And uh, uh, he's an intelligent man. I'm sure he still understands those issues as well as he did uh, three or five years ago. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I would expect that in his mind he'd be wondering about uh, what he can uh, move forward with, uh, given all the political constraints on him. Um, I take some comfort from an interview he gave just after he became Prime Minister in which he said uh, he supported direct action and, and he would continue to support it if the policy was working. Uh, so uh, let's see if it works. And uh, uh, the implication of that is that he would try something else if it wasn't working. John, you know more about than most of us here about selling difficult policies. What do you think? <laughs> well, I can hardly speak with authority having lost an election trying to lay out a detailed response, including a climate change policy uh, at the time, which wasn't controversial back in 1993. Um, <clears throat> look, I think um, Malcolm, has, uh, Malcolm Turnbull has the seat of Wentworth in Sydney, which is my old seat. And there's somebody there, an art dealer, who's running against him for the next election. And his whole election strategy is, can we get back to the real Malcolm Turnbull, the guy that believed in, you know, climate change and gay marriage and other things, rather than, than, um, than what we've been hearing, um, rather than what we've been hearing in recent days. I mean, the point I made before, what really has annoyed me over the last 25 or 30 years is the fact that politicians have so easily paid, played short-term negative politics. And Howard admitted at the end of 2013, when he was speaking to Nigel Lawson's climate denier group in London, uh, that uh, he deliberately paid short-term politics uh, with the issue. When it suited him politically, he would support an emissions trading scheme. When it didn't suit him, he wouldn't. Uh, he said he'd ended up as an agnostic on climate change, preferring to rely on his instincts. And. Uh, <laughs> I'd have to say that I've worked for him for a while. I know something about his instincts, but um, I'd have to say that it's not... When 97% of climate scientists agree that this is a problem, a significant problem, an urgent problem, it's not a question of religion, is it? It's a question of science. It's not a question of instincts, it's a question of scientific fact. And one of the great disappointments of the Gillard, Gillard period, to me, was when she did change her mind and, and, and embrace an emissions trading scheme um, and uh, announced the price on carbon in particular, I guess, uh, that she didn't take the opportunity to start to educate people about the significance of that decision, to link that decision to, to the range of options that exist in response to climate change, to link it to the science and to argue the case. She announced it in February, didn't put the detail down to July, and Tony Abbott had a unique opportunity every single day to go around this country and misrepresent that issue. You know, he was going to close down Wyala, he was going to send women barren. Whatever he wanted to say, he would say it and get away with it because he was not contested. And that did a lot of damage to the debate. I think one final comment, though. I must say, having said all that, I do think the electorate is just way ahead of both political parties right now. And they're looking for leadership on this issue. And the first one that stands up in the context, perhaps, of the next election and actually starts to specify how they're going to get to those emissions reduction targets by 2030, I think they'll get credibility. Um, and they might even win an election, unlike me. And, and just <laughs> on that last point, when you look at the direct action policy, do you think there's any way that it can be changed, amended, to become fit for purpose? Or is it 
Well, a lot of the argument about direct action was that the government didn't want to put on price on carbon, but it needed a response. But if you think about it, every action under direct action, whether it's planting trees or whatever, has an implicit price on carbon. And somehow that never got focused on in terms of the public debate. And some of those implicit prices would be much higher than the $23 a tonne that was set originally by the Gillard government. Uh, I think that there are proposals around in the Liberal Party to use the safeguard mechanism to try and evolve, if you like, a direct action to, a, um, to some sort of uh, pricing system for carbon. Um, I think that's making it harder than it needs to be. I think I'd scrap the direct action plan. Realistically, they are not going to have enough financial capacity to buy 26% reduction in emissions by 2030. So you might as well admit that. I think the one little bit of leeway that Malcolm's got as he stands today, and I mean, he did embrace the, the Abbott climate policies as part of getting the support he needed to win. Everyone's hoping he sort of wins the next election and ditches that commitment. But it's, you see, it's been pretty hard for him to actually you know, set some of those commitments aside. But the one area where he didn't say anything specific was in the area of renewables. And he could easily, I think, come out and start talking about uh, uh, renewables, a new renewable energy target for 2030. Uh, the Labor Party's made it easy. They've already started talking about a 50% target. He could come out at 45 and actually send the positive messages that need to be sent. And in that context, make some small changes to the rules in relation to ARENA and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to facilitate that happening. Unfortunately, his policy is still to abolish those two institutions. I think he's got to back off basically all of that in the course of the next little while. Okay, let's look at this then from the point of view of business. Um, in Paris, there was enormous business representation and one of the things that I hadn't kind of realised uh, fully until I was listening to some of those business leaders there was the extent to which having some degree of certainty in a domestic situation and internationally will actually mean that a lot of businesses just start taking sensible decisions f off their own bat. But at the same time, we are seeing a, a lot of upheaval as we go through this transition. So I'd like to talk about that now, about what this transition to a low carbon economy means. Are we seeing the end of coal? What does it mean in terms of the Australian economy, jobs in Australia? What kind of upheaval are we likely to see? How will it play out, Ross? Well, first on your point, Lenore, about uh, business wanting stable policy. Well, stable policy is uh, crucial for good investment decisions and for efficient change. Uh, but uh, uh, parts of Australian business played a major role in killing the carbon price, which could have given the stability that they wanted. So they, they wanted an end of action on climate change more than they wanted stability of, uh, uh, of policy. And... Uh, uh, the, several of the Australian uh, mining companies, uh, the energy companies, uh, played big roles in financing campaigns to uh, to kill off uh, effective action on climate change. So, uh, uh, when when business now says we want stability, uh, yes, uh, but stability around policies that will actually do the job, uh, rather than stability around the absence of uh, effective policies. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I, I think it's a mistake to think of business as just one category. Uh, um, in response to new opportunity and challenge, businesses respond in different ways. And, and 
some meet the challenge and prosper and others are pushed uh, uh, by the wayside. Uh, uh, if uh, when the uh, when digital photography came came in, uh, Kodak thought that uh, they could do well by continuing to invest in the the old way of taking photos. Well, they don't exist anymore. I've already mentioned that uh, the companies that are specialist coal mining companies uh, uh, everywhere in the world, Australia, the United States, uh, Europe, China. Uh, um, have only got a tiny fraction of the value now that they had uh, five years ago. So shareholders in them have lost a, a, a lot of m money. Part of the structural change will happen not through existing businesses succeeding in adapting, but those who can't adapt being pushed aside and becoming unimportant and new businesses growing. There's a lot of uh, uh, businesses uh, playing major roles today that didn't exist. Uh, 15 years ago, all of the uh, the companies that are doing well out of the internet and information technology will look forward for uh, 15 years, and a lot of the companies that will be playing major roles in Australia and South Australia are companies which are small now or, or perhaps don't even uh, uh, exist now. This is the way progress happens when you get uh, rapid technological change. Now. Uh, the, the decline of established ways of doing things does involve uh, uh, a costly uh, structural change. Um, that's one of the things that a capitalist economy, a market economy, is all about. Uh, and one of the advantages of uh, the, the market economy is that it allows those changes to take place. It uh, allows those who aren't adapting to be pushed aside. Uh, the worst thing you can have is... Uh, uh, is uh, uh, political support for the old regimes that, that keeps uh, businesses that are not adapting uh, uh, alive. And that's the biggest threat that we face in this very big transition, that the, the old economy will have too much influence, old business, and, and will get in the way of the, uh, the, the changes that, that we, we have to make. Uh, there'll be uh, um, as, uh, as many uh, jobs and more good jobs in the low carbon economy of the future in Australia and especially in South, East, in South Australia uh, 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 than there were in the old uh, uh, fossil economy. But they won't be the same people and the same jobs and good policy when you have rapid structural change uh, recognises that the problems of adjustment in, especially in places uh, uh, where uh, old opportunities are uh, falling away, uh, training of, uh, of people, um, uh, uh, structural adjustment to help regions uh, that are affected by the decline of, of coal and old, old industries has to be an important part uh, of economic policy. We, we've done it well before uh, when we reduced protection uh, uh, and, and uh, partly as a result I saw the the uh, removal of, of the uh, Hunter Valley steel industry and the decline of the Wollongong Port Kembla uh, uh, steel industry. Structural adjustment programs were, were very important in, uh, in helping individual workers and, um, and regions make, make the adjustment. But that's what our focus should be on, capturing the value in the new economy, uh, helping people uh, um, make the uh, adjustment uh, rather than uh, 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 slowing down the change that, that has to occur. John, what, what's your view on this? Yes, look, I think um, 
business, you say, wanting to see stable policy. I think business today would like to see any policy uh, and, and make a start in going in the right direction. But it's true that uh, what Ross says, I mean, a large part of the business community ran very hard in support of Abbott's attempt to close down the renewables industry. Uh, and uh, the big power generators in particular, Origin Energy Australia and, and AGL, were pushing really hard behind the scenes to get rid of that renewable energy target, while at the same time they were mostly publicising the fact that they're really very green and, and, and very strong supporters of renewables. And it almost worked with Dick Warburton, a climate denier appointed by Abbott to do an independent review of, of, uh, of the renewable energy target. Um, and, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, it's true under both gov governments of both persuasions that 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 fossil fuel lobby, power, dirty power generation lobby, has had enormous influence on governments of both sides. Uh, some people have said to me, we have the best government money can buy, and if you start to think about it in those terms, you see the outcome that, we, that we've had. Um, and then, and that do, in doing that, they've closed down a lot of opportunities that they could otherwise have benefited from. Instead of taking the Kodak position, saying we'll keep doing what we're doing and we'll, we'll win anyway, what uh, Einstein, I think, defined as insanity, wasn't it? Doing the same thing day in, day out and expecting different results. That's the problem that we've got with a lot of business. It's not prepared to adjust. I mean, there are technologies around, for example, that would refine coal. So it would be quite safe to burn it or turn it into a coal water fuel, which would be a fraction of the cost of diesel. And a whole host of technologies that the industry will not look at because if you go to the big coal companies, they say, we dig it and ship it as fast as we can, and that's all we want to do. And the bigger ones with the lowest extraction costs are doing better than the small ones that are falling by the wayside. But there's no thinking in there about a medium-term strategy that if the emissions reduction process is to be adhered to, then 75% of known coal reserves are never going to be mined, uh, and you should be thinking of, of, of something else to do. And what worries me, another dimension of that in business, is just look at your superannuation fund and ask the question how much of it is invested in climate-exposed uh, entities, companies, uh, compared to uh, low-carbon intensive investments. We run a project called the Asset Owners Disclosure Project where we've taken the top 500 um, asset owners of the world, some 40-odd trillion US dollars worth of assets under management, all the big superannuation and pension funds of the world, sovereign wealth funds, uh, <coughs> some university endowment funds, some insurance companies. And that group, we, what we do is survey them, rate them and rank them on their management of climate risk. Only 7% of those in our last survey can actually tell you what the climate risks are that they're running, and they're very large. And yet it's a matter of, of, of common sense that they should have adjusted their position. If coal share prices have collapsed 80 or 90 per cent, at the same time as, say, Tesla's gone from 20 bucks to 150 to 250 dollars, I think there's a portfolio decision there that you'd make. Uh, a lot of business is about common sense. It's not driven by right or left or ideology or, you know, liberal versus labour or, or whatever. It's just common sense. Uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I was on the board of a printing group, significant printing group, and I asked at board level that we commission an independent review of our carbon footprint. Everyone thought I was mad because they'd never thought about a carbon footprint for a printing industry. But it uses a lot of power and it uses a lot of transport, a lot of logistics. The recommendation was we could cut our cost base by 30% straight to the bottom line by simply reorganising the use of power and the use of transport. 
Now, that's not an ideological choice. That's just common sense in business. And, uh, OK, businesses will make bad judgments, as, as Kodak did. But, I mean, you, want to, you really want them to be thinking outside the square. And uh, part of that will come from leadership and government setting a, a different framework. And part of it will come from consumers driving them, as we've seen, you know, highest penetration of solar PV in, on household roofs in South Australia for a lot of reasons. But communities expressing its view. And that's what so, business needs to respond to. So that really brings me to the last question I want to put to you before we open it up to the audience for questions, which is looking at things from the point of view of individuals, superannuation investors, investors, shareholders, consumers. As individuals look at this economic transition that is coming, like it or not, what sort of decisions should they be making? Uh, what sort of factors should they be bearing in mind? And I'll start with you, John, because of your um, involvement in that asset owner disclosure project and the sort of risks that you've been identifying in terms of um, climate policy. Well, we found that those top uh, 500 invest over 50% of their assets in climate-exposed industries and less than 2% in low-carbon intensive industries. That's a 50 to two punt against climate change, our government response to climate change, technology, some combination of those factors actually precipitating a global financial crisis. And this wasn't just us in more recent times. Uh, Hank Paulson, who was Secretary of the US Treasury at the time of the global financial crisis, has come out and said, look, uh, in his view, uh, in support of the things we've been saying, he, in his view, the risk being run by, uh, the climate risk being run by major asset owners of the world dwarfs, in his words, the risks that were run in the subprime crisis in the United States. Recently, Mar uh, Carney at the Bank of England has uh, set up a task force chaired by Bloomberg to start to look at the issue of disclosure of some of these risks. And, um, you know, of course, the Europeans are actually looking, I think, at mandating disclosure of these risks. Now, as a so the responsibility, the fiduciary responsibility of a director or trustee of a superannuation fund is to manage your money to maximise your return over your working life. Uh, and uh, that's a long-term structural decision-making process. Yet they hire short-term motivated and remunerated managers uh, and, uh, you know, who, who are not inclined to take a medium-term view of a, of a climate risk. So you can ask your superannuation fund how they're managing climate risk, why they're mismanaging it, and they're conspicuously mismanaging it. And you can't say it won't happen. I mean, it could be an extreme climate event that starts to strand the value of asset. Look at Katrina, wiped out New Orleans, or Sandy went further up the coast and caused uh, the government to have to waterproof New York. I mean, these are big consequences in terms of the value of property, infrastructure, shares of companies, companies themselves. If you add to that the emissions reduction process that was agreed in Paris, when that gets some teeth, maybe a global price on carbon, it's going to change the relativities quite dramatically. Uh, thirdly, of course, technology, the pace of technology, the, the rollout of effective solar and wind with heat and battery storage, for example, put those three things together, any one of them or all three of them together, you could precipitate a, a, a climate crisis, a climate-induced financial crisis. And so I think as individuals, you can start making a lot of noise about that. Uh, I was surprised that um, when the GFC occurred and the value of superannuation, depending which funds you're in, so on, probably fell 40 to 50%. I thought people might be marching in the streets about how mismanaged their money had been. 
mean, people have marched in the street for a couple of dollars on a wage. Uh, you know, I'm amazed that the community hasn't got behind that, but that's what will drive it. We've tried moving motions at, uh, at uh, superannuation fund meetings and so on, trying to get them to answer some of these, some of these issues. Uh, our banks are probably more exposed than our super funds in terms of fossil fuels and climate-related exposure, but they're not bringing them to account. I mean, as individuals who bank or who have superannuation, you can do a lot to drive that process of change. And once they see the extent of their fiduciary responsibilities and get held accountable for it, then I think it will make a big difference. There's an example of a fiduciary case now being run in the United States, Peabody Energy, and a superannuation fund for the employees, which was buying Peabody shares <laughs> when the shares were falling, uh, with directors with a conflict of interest, you'd have to say, pretty clear-cut case of a breach of fiduciary responsibility. I think it applies to a whole host of superannuation funds today. Ross, just quickly, have you got some advice about what people do on an individual consumer shareholder basis when they're facing this kind of economic transition? Yeah, we're going to find in the next uh, couple of years that uh, uh, individual households and uh, citizens have an increasing range of possibilities to to opt for low uh, carbon footprints in the ordinary things they do, like buying electricity, uh, not too far in the future, the uh, the, the cars that, that we use. Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, within a couple of years, for a lot of people, there'll be options that, that can reduce costs while improving the carbon footprint. And uh, individuals taking advantage, moving quickly on all of those things can put pressure uh, on the whole of the, the business system. And the other area is is uh, just as citizens are making making sure that our leaders know that, uh, that, that we think this is an important issue, uh, making them aware of what I think is the reality that there's a strong community base of support for strong action on climate change. Okay, your turn. Have we got any questions? Oh, what a shock, we do. Uh, this gentleman here. Um, thanks. Thanks for your talks, everyone. Um, I wanted to ask you, the panel, Dr Hewson, as a former leader of the coalition, and Mr Garner as a respected um, academic, um, what angles or pitches or hooks do you need to engage the current batch of coalition politicians, and Labor politicians for that matter, with this issue if the last um, 20 years of debate on that has not been sufficient. Um, it may be changing right now in the sense that Shorten said yesterday he was going to run hard on climate as an issue in this campaign. Now, if he puts substance behind that, and they've already talked in terms of a 50% renewable energy target by 2030. Uh, if they start to put some substance behind how they're going to achieve a 26 to 28% reduction in emissions, um, I think that could effectively wedge Turnbull, quite, eff you know, quite effectively wedge Turnbull, and, uh, and, and you know, he'll be caught between the backbench at one side and the, and, and the public debate, which I think would support Shorten on that, on the other. Um, you know, there was a motion passed, I'm told, at the recent state uh, Liberal Party meeting in New South Wales that they should... Uh, Commission an independent review of the science. <laughs> you've still got the, <coughs> you've still got the, um, the laggards in this business, and uh, they're pretty conspicuous in the, 
in the party, but I think community response to a bit of leadership uh, by, uh, say, a shortened in these circumstances might drive a change. It's very difficult for Turnbull to change because, as you've seen, he's, he did a deal with, his, with this rump of the party to, uh, to get to the B leader, but uh, at some point, I mean, you need to lead and not just pay off to those who got you there. I, I agree with John. And, and I have one quick observation, having reported this for a long time, and that is that I think before the coalition can get a credible policy, they have to actually call out the fact that the people who are sort of laggards in the coalition on this question actually do not believe the science of, or accept the science of climate change. And so when direct action was presented, it was presented as a thing that would make sense to do anyway, even if the science doesn't turn out to be true. I think at some point they're going to have to confront the fact that you can't have a credible policy which people who don't agree with the science of climate change accept. It's just not possible. You've got to call it out and be honest about that and then start developing a policy from that basis. Um, the gentleman at the front. Thank you. My name's Fuzzy Trojan. Um, the state government is running a royal commission into the nuclear industry proposing possibly that we become the state, the, the world capital for dumping uranium waste. What do you think of this idea? Ross, do you want to start on that? Well, from a climate change perspective, uh, nuclear energy is zero emissions energy. And uh, there are some countries, uh, especially the big developing countries, China and India, uh, for, for which uh, getting to zero emissions, which they have to do, if we're going to meet our climate objectives, uh, would be assisted by having nuclear as part of the mix. I think Australia's in a very different position because we've got lower cost alternatives. We've got much better renewable energy alternatives than uh, China and India have. So I doubt that nuclear power generation will make economic sense in Australia. But if it did, it would be a low emission source of energy. On the, uh, uh, the, the, the use of... Uh, uh, of the stable geology of Australia for uh, nuclear waste. If the world is going to be using nuclear energy, the world will need safe uh, uh, areas to store it. Uh, there probably aren't more safe areas than, uh, than some of the inland uh, um, uh, stable ge geologies of, of Australia. So uh, I wouldn't like to rule out on on uh, uh, over simple grounds, uh, the assistance we could give uh, the, the world transition to a low carbon economy. John? Uh, look, I basically agree with Ross. Um, I do think that you should give uh, credit where it's due that uh, to see uh, this issue put on the agenda for mature debate, I think is very important. And the fact that uh, Jay, Jay Weatherall has done that uh, this has been another example of where short-term politics has just been allowed to run. You know, the NIMBY response, not in my backyard. You do need to have a mature assessment of these issues, and uh, that's what's been initiated by that, that review. Um, I think it is true that geologically we're one of the best places in the world to store waste. Uh, but again, you know, it's not going to be an easy decision for a country like Australia to go that way. I'm told that a number of the Aboriginal leaders have seen this as a viable business opportunity, but we've got to have all those dimensions laid out and debated, which is where I think we are. And as to whether we'd ever go to nuclear power, I think that we have, it would be a cost disadvantage in this country, so I don't think it's very likely. 
I've um, <clears throat> heard a lot of talks about climate change and uh, very rarely, if ever, have I heard anybody mention the military, our Defence Department. We see their planes fly, fly across our television screens and their um, our, um, tanks rolling across the uh, uh, countryside and their ships wandering around using all this fuel. Are they do anything, doing anything about um, climate change? Russ, do you have a view on that? Not enough, like the Australian government in general is not doing enough. But uh, there, there is increasing uh, awareness in the defence community, more in the United States than in Australia, that climate change is a defence issue, uh, that uh, uh, unmitigated climate change would destabilise countries uh, in, a, in a way that would make uh, security more difficult and more expensive and for that reason the Pentagon the US Defense Department is is seeing uh, action against climate change as, as a very important part of the American defense posture there's some people in the Australian defense establishment starting to think that way but I think we've got a fair way to go to catch up just to illustrate the point uh, uh, the United States, supported by Australia, uh, supported by a lot of countries, is uh, spending a lot uh, in so far unsuccessfully seeking uh, stability in Syria. Well, Syria was destabilised by changes in climate. Uh, the, the, the Mediterranean region was destabilised by, uh, 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 by climate change. Uh, the, the Arab Spring of uh, 2007 followed uh, severe droughts and uh, food shortages, which led to political instability uh, in uh, in Libya, uh, in Egypt, in Syria. Uh, there were a million people displaced from their normal farm occupations in Syria, left homeless in the cities, and and that destabilised the politics of Syria, and is a very important part of the background. Uh, of the, the security problem we now all have in, in uh, Syria. Syria is a very early, small-scale version of how unmitigated climate change would destabilise political uh, systems in a way that gave us very big security problems. So uh, climate change is a defence issue. Yeah, look, I agree wholeheartedly that the national security implications of climate change are very real. And the heartening thing to me is they're getting more and more recognised, as more and more significance is being attached to them. Uh, just one related story I mentioned before that you can refine coal technology developed in Australia. Well, the US Defence Department in the 80s actually adopted that technology, built a plant in Japan, uh, produced um, uh, coal water fuel by refining coal, powderising and adding water and tested it in all the defence equipment as well as turbines and cars through General Motors. They tested it in all defence equipment, helicopters, planes, um, it, 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 tanks, it, trucks, whatever. And uh, then it was, uh, they were, US Congress was lent on by the oil industry and others and they passed legislation to ban the development of coal water fuel in the United States. One of the arguments, I'm told, was put by Teddy Kennedy in the Senate at the time, that this is the most powerful geopolitical weapon ever developed. We better not allow it to go any further. 
And so when you think about it, offences had a, a fairly chequered history in relation to some of these issues and solutions that could easily have been transferred from defence to elsewhere were lost uh, in that process. Very inspiring talks, thanks to the speakers. Um, Mr Garno mentioned the change of mind by Labor in 2011 um, to push forward on a price on carbon and um, no doubt is aware of the role of the Green Party in that decision by Labor. And I'm just wondering um, whether you're um, familiar with the current Greens policy, um, Renew Australia, and its push for um, direct investment in the change over to renewables. Um, and if so, if you have any comments, thank you. Uh, well, I, I work very closely with the multi-party committee, uh, parliamentary committee on climate change in developing the policies that were legislated in 2011, work very closely with Bob Brown and Christine Milne, as well as with uh, Tony Windsor and Bob Oakeshott, with Julia Gillard and uh, the, uh, the, the Labor government ministers. Uh, and that was a very effective period of constructive policy making and, uh, and, and the Greens' uh, influence in all that was, was very productive. It was a good period of policy making uh, in, in Australia. Uh, the, the Greens have been uh, ahead of the other major parties on this. Uh, it helped to give us some uh, good policies in 2011. Uh, I think the, the, the Green Party continuing to, uh, uh, to, to tell it as it is, uh, 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 assist the, uh, the other parties uh, in getting their act together. Look, I don't need to add anything to that. I think uh, the only danger with the Greens is sometimes they get to be seen as too extreme. You know, when uh, the emissions reduction targets are 26 to 28 per cent for 2030, you ask the Greens, they'll say 80 per cent. People find it hard enough to make the adjustment in their thinking to the sort of target that's been adopted. So, I mean, a more constructive participation in the current debate would help. But I agree with Ross that basically they've been at the cutting edge of the debate all the way through, both in the development of policy and the development of the public debate on the issue. Okay. Hey, um, thank you for this. It's been very interesting. But I'm just wondering what role you see um, farming, farming communities have and carbon sequestration in a green growth economy? Uh, look, I think it can have a very significant role. I had a debate some time ago on ABC Radio with Barnaby Joyce about this. He'd never heard about soil carbon. I don't think he's heard about climate change either. He just opposes it. But, but uh, he, soil carbon is a very effective... Improving the carbon content of the soil is a very effective way of responding to climate change. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not that hard to do in terms of changing farming techniques, uh, changing from uh, chemical to organic fertiliser, so on. There's a number of things, as you know, that you can do to actually dramatically improve the carbon content of the soil. Uh, my proposal at the time was that why don't you have a, a national party policy on this where uh, these uh, farmers would be able to generate a measured carbon credit for their efforts in improving soil carbon. Those carbon credits could be solved into an emissions trading type process where there's a price on carbon and that would be a significantly larger income from the average farmer than would otherwise have been the case. A strong financial incentive, a strong climate change incentive to do it. Barnaby was bewildered. Uh, the, um, 
with the uh, emissions trading scheme that was legislated in 2011 and, and worked very well for two years from the middle of 2012 until 2014, there was a carbon farming initiative that, that allowed uh, farmers to uh, uh, take measures to uh, increase carbon in soils, in pastures, in woodlands. Uh, or in forests in, or plantations and uh, receive credits for those. They receive the credits by selling uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the... They received income by selling the credits uh, uh, from carbon sequestration to firms that had to uh, meet liabilities under the, uh, the carbon pricing scheme. Uh, that started to work. Uh, uh, and the, the good thing I'll say about uh, the Emissions Reduction Fund is that it has allowed some of those things to continue. Um, the Carbon Farming, farming Initiative uh, uh, was starting to give very strong support to the things that John's been talking about. It would have just died when the carbon pricing uh, system was uh, destroyed in 2014 if it hadn't been for uh, direct action, the Emissions Reduction Fund. That allows some, fund, some funding, less and not so widespread, uh, as with the old emission training scheme, but it allows it to continue. So, so that's a, a, a positive point uh, about the Emissions Reduction Fund. Just, just one last point. Uh, if we're going to get to zero net emissions, we probably won't get there fast enough to hold temperature increase 2 degrees or 1.5. So we, we'll need to, to get, get rid of emissions altogether from electricity generation, transport, but we'll need negative emissions. and. Uh, uh, using uh, the, uh, the, uh, carbon sequestration in soils and woodlands, in, in the oceans, uh, seaweeds and so on, ca can make an important contribution to negative emissions. It's an old technology. It's been working. Uh, photosynthesis has been working well for a billion years. Uh, it's got quite a job to do in future. You've mentioned it uh, at least once or twice, and Lenore's written about it, uh, Australia Institute's written about it quite frequently, but the, the uh, issue of subsidies that our government makes towards fossil fuel transport and energy industries is a, is a tremendous uh, drag on the economy. A ten, roughly 10 percent of every tax dollar goes into subsidies into one of those three sectors. But obviously, it's that they're not doing it just off the kindness of the heart. It's all it's a trade-off from political contributions to to uh, to the subsidies, roughly one to two hundred or something like that. What are we going to do, and how are we ever going to get control of the root cause of a number of our problems, which is campaign contribution reform? As well as being a huge issue, we've got about like two minutes to answer it. Yeah. Uh, well, I agree with you. I think the big, biggest problem of our democracy is uh, the role of money in uh, funding political parties. Uh, I think there would be very strong community support for what the New South Wales Premier, uh, Baird, said he wanted to do before the last election, and that was to ban corporate donations to political parties and to limit personal individual donations to some reasonable amount, like $1,000 uh, per person. Uh, you could add to that in ways that have been discussed in the United States, some, some facility for people to be able to notionally uh, al allocate some small sum uh, of their tax revenue to a modest sum on an individual basis to a uh, 
political party. But I think it, it is very difficult to deal with a lot of our economic problems and not only the climate problem uh, while money has such big influence. The, the, of course, the, the huge example of this is uh, Clive Palmer, uh, uh, whose uh, company um, in Queensland, uh, Queensland Nickel, uh, uh, put $27 million into running the, into financing the Palmer United Party's uh, uh, campaign that gave them the balance of power in the current Senate. Uh, now, they've fallen apart since, but they were still together long enough to use that balance of power to defeat carbon pricing. If it wasn't for the Palmer United Party's votes, uh, we would still have uh, uh, um, carbon pricing. In any other political system, that would be seen as corruption. That leaves you with about 15 seconds, John. Look, I, I strongly believe in campaign, in, in political reform as a key element of the overall reform task in this country. And a key element of political reform is cleaning up campaign contributions and more broadly lobbying. I mean, I've come to the reluctant view in the end that unless you can do a, a bad type system where you, you ban corporate union institutional, um, you know, research centre type donations and limit personal contributions to say $1,000 and we just should move to public funding of election campaigns and cut it out altogether. That sadly is all we have time for. I'd like you to thank our two panellists, uh, Ross Gunno, John Hewson, and thank you all for participating. Thanks very much.